Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. The text we will be looking at this evening is in John chapter 12, and I am fairly convinced, I am fairly convinced that my comments will be brief this evening. Uh, Hopefully there will be some moments of poignant reflection. Uh, This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. This is after Jesus has been uh, anointed by Mary in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. This is after Jesus has gone into uh, the town of Jerusalem in what is commonly known as the triumphal entry. This is uh, after a little bit of teaching from Jesus. And now at the, the end of chapter 12, we have these words from the author of John. It says, Jesus had done many miraculous signs before the people, but they didn't believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed through our message? To whom is the arm of the Lord fully revealed? This here is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 53 uh, that John has appealed to in the previous verses as well. Verse 39, it says, Isaiah explains why they couldn't believe. And now he's uh, quoting from Isaiah chapter six. Uh, It says, He made their eyes blind and closed their minds so that they might not see with their eyes, understand with their minds, and turn their lives around, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus's glory. He spoke about Jesus. Even so, many leaders believed in him, but they wouldn't acknowledge their faith because they feared that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. They believed, but they loved human praise more than God's glory. Jesus shouted, whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me, but in the one who sent me. Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me won't live in darkness. If people hear my words and don't keep them, I don't judge them. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. Whoever rejects me and doesn't receive my words will be judged at the last day by the word I have spoken. I don't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me regarding what I should speak and say. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, whatever I say is just as the Father has said to me. The word of God for the people of God. 
So throughout the, our study of the Gospel of John, there's a couple of ways that we could look at the breakdown of this book. You could see here uh, in the first 11 chapters, we have Jesus's ministry. This is uh, the, the signs that he is giving to prove who he is. This is also where we have the majority of the, the I am statements that Jesus is making along the way to sort of identify who he is. And then when we hit John chapter 12, uh, we sort of slow down the pace of the narrative. From John 1 through the end of chapter 11, it summarizes about three or so years of Jesus's ministry, encompassing all of the different miracles that he performs that John thinks are important to include in his work. But when we hit John chapter 12, it slows down dramatically. In fact, in John chapter 12, it gives us this chronological statement that this is six days before the Passover, meaning this is six days before Jesus would die. So in the first 11 chapters, we have three or so years of Jesus' life, but then the book slows down dramatically as it's going towards what is called the Passion Narrative. This is where Jesus is eventually um, killed at the hands of the Roman oppressors and crucified, uh, and we see how this, this, this shifts and the, the, the narrative slows down completely. So we have in John chapter 12, it's six days before Passover, and then in John chapter 13, which we'll look at next week, is the night before Jesus is crucified. And then from 13 through chapter 17, it's still the night before, and then 18 and 19 is the day of. So within the second large portion of the book of John, we basically have just a snapshot of one, two, three days in the last week of Jesus's life that takes up uh, almost the majority of the book here compared to three years of ministry in the first 11 chapters. This is why Martin Kaler describes the Gospels as passion narratives with extended introductions. What the Gospel authors want us to see is the last week or so of Jesus's life, his death and ultimately his resurrection, but we see here his resurrection is only uh, encompassing about two verses or two chapters at the end of the book. This is one way that you could structure the book according to the timelines of Jesus's ministry, all the things that he's doing over three years and then how it slows down dramatically and we have Jesus just teaching his disciples in the last few days before he is killed. Another way to structure this, however, is to see chapters one through the end of chapter 12, which is where we are tonight, as the book of signs. All throughout these first 12 chapters, Jesus would do a miracle, and then the author would say, this is the first sign, or this is the second sign, this is the third sign. It seems uh, that John is intent on waving the flag on certain things that Jesus is doing to say, hey, reader, pay attention. This is the first sign that you guys need to be aware of as you understand who Jesus is and how people are receiving him or not receiving him. All throughout the book of signs, it's not just about who Jesus is, but it's also about what the audience and what Jesus's audience, what they are to do with Jesus, whether they will accept or reject who he is. Throughout the book of signs, we have certain um, key signpost moments like Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in chapter two. This is a classic miracle where Jesus takes the ceremonial pitchers, fills them with water, and turns them into the best wine that was at this wedding feast. 
another sign would be when Jesus heals the royal official's son who hears that Jesus is nearby, goes to him and says, Jesus, my son is really sick. And Jesus says, unless you guys see signs, you'll never believe. Go now, your son is healed. And then we have this weird uh, editorial note where when the person gets home to see their son, he says, what time did my son get well? And they coordinate the times and it was the same time that Jesus pronounced, go, your son is healed. There's a story of uh, the lame man who was sitting beside a pool. This is like a miracle sort of pool where if you could get into the waters when they're rippling that you might receive some sort of a cure. This man had been there for 38 years years and Jesus strolls in and says, do you wanna be well? And you're just like on pins and needles saying you're like, yeah, he does, do something, Jesus, do something. This is gonna be cool if you can break out of that. I've heard this story a thousand times and see what's really happening here. Jesus is healing the lame man by the pool saying, get up, your sins are forgiven, get out of here, go. And Jesus starts this sort of um, domino effect in the sense of, he starts to creep onto the scene and the power structures and the religious leaders begin to say, hmm. Thus setting uh, the, the course for John's gospel in these first 12 chapters, you're either on team Jesus or you're on team let's kill this guy, which is how this narrative begins to look and Jesus is starting to become something of a public figure and beginning to take on the ire of the religious leaders. We have Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, there's people that are just following him to hear what he's going to say to them. They're kind of hanging on every word, but they look out and two of his disciples, Philip and Andrew say, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna feed these people? And Jesus already knows what's going to happen. Eventually they take the lunch of this small kid, his five loaves and his two fish, and then Jesus blesses it. He breaks it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Talk about this every week. And sends it out onto the hillside as people are fed to the point of overflowing. Uh, some people would also add the Jesus walking on water as part of this same fourth sign, but scholars are kind of uh, iffy on that. These two things are, are linked together. These two events are linked together, but the author doesn't make any specific reference to walking on water as one of the big signs that Jesus does. Jesus also heals the man that was born blind in chapter nine. And then finally, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. These are the signs that Jesus does all throughout the first 12 chapters of this gospel. And for the author, it's as if he's saying over and over, pay attention to what Jesus is doing and begin to make some decisions about whether you're on team Jesus or you're on team let's kill this guy because these things cannot be denied. At the very end of the book, in John chapter 20, it says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, because John only records six of them, right? But if you read the synoptics, there's all sorts of other miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. In John, Jesus is very verbose. It's like he'll do a miracle, and then he'll talk for two and a half chapters about whatever, like, I am the light, and we need the light to stay out of the darkness and I'm like the father and all this weird stuff that's not included in the synoptics. I was listening to a podcast this past week and the, uh, the guy who was leading the podcast was saying, when you read John, it's like you're transported into another dimension that doesn't really look like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these other stories about Jesus. Jesus did many other miraculous signs 
Like throughout Mark's gospel, it's important that Jesus keeps casting out demons because in Mark's gospel, it's Jesus versus the principalities and the powers and evil, capital E, and sin, capital S, and death, capital D. Like Jesus goes against these cosmic forces. So him casting out demons is is part of that warfare, but that's not included in John. But here at the end, it says he does all these many other miraculous signs. He he does these sort of uh, exorcisms. He heals people that can't hear. There's there's certain moments in these other gospels that are not included in John because John is shaped theological history that is meant to get a specific point across. But here at the end, he's kind of wrapping all this up saying, Jesus did all these many other things in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. The Greek there is in this book, in this biblion, I believe is is the... the term there, but these things are written, the things that I have included are written, so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he is God's son, and that believing you will have life in his name. John's shaped theology, John's shaped history is to get you as the reader to make a decision as to what team you are on. What you do with these signs will indicate for John and for these early apostles whether or not you have life in his name. And when we come to our text, it begins with this ominous note at the end of the book of signs, at the end of the very uh, first large section of this work, and it says, they did not believe him. It's as if the author wants you to see that lines are being drawn in the sand, and for some people, they can't get on board with who Jesus is, despite the fact that he's doing these miracles that go beyond any sort of uh, rational understanding of the world, when you have a homeless Jewish rabbi raising people from the dead, and yet they do not believe. I would encourage all of us, though, before we start saying, oh, those guys are dumb. If I was there and Jesus said, Lazarus, get out of that tomb, come on out. I would want us to pump the brakes on how we would respond to that. So before we chuck the stones at these people, just understand what the author is doing. You've got folks that don't believe and you've got folks that do believe based on the work that Jesus is doing. And for the author, they they link this to Isaiah chapter six, which all of the other gospel authors do in Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's even in... in, um, the book of Acts, with people talking about Paul's teaching, they go back to this keynote passage in Isaiah chapter six that says, God made their eyes blind and closed their minds so that they might not see with their eyes. This is actually John's own shaping of Isaiah chapter six. In Isaiah chapter six, it talks about seeing and hearing, but John doesn't give two rips about the hearing. He just wants us to notice they're not seeing these things because for John and for his audience, seeing was uh, a more primary sense than just hearing. 
He made their eyes blind, he closed their minds so that they might not see with their eyes, they might not understand with their minds, they might not turn their lives around, lest God heal them. On the face of it, this sounds super deterministic. This sounds super like God saying, you're not gonna believe, you're not, you will, dad. Dad's in. I had, I had to let my dad in. You know. That's not exactly what's happening here. It's not as if the author is saying God did these things, but it's as if people are proving themselves that they're not going to be on board with what God is doing. One scholar says God had told Isaiah that his message would fall on deaf ears, and it did. And that whatever Isaiah did uh, would remain unseen by willfully blind eyes. And it did. There's certain truths about the world that not everyone's going to be on board with, and this is what John is saying. Listen, Jesus can do the coolest things of all time, but some people just don't care. And not only that, they won't allow themselves to believe and to trust and to move in that direction for any number of reasons. It's as if we have these lines that are being drawn in the sand. And some people are saying, yep, I'm with Jesus. And other people are saying, no, mm -mm, I can't, for whatever it is. Now, what's interesting about this, and this is where I would really like to hang out in the next few moments, is there's some people that want to push this line a bit, to, to, to make this line a bit more murky, because they don't wanna leave the comfortability of the world they've known, but they do sort of believe what Jesus is about. Uh, did you catch this? It says, even though many leaders, the text, uh, the term here is, uh, like a ruler, like a religious elite. It's, it's almost going back to chapter three with Nicodemus, who was that religious leader who was going to Jesus in the secret of the night saying, hey man, I see you doing some really neat things. Tell me about that. So there's some people who are at the uppity ups of this Jewish system. They're believing in him, but they wouldn't acknowledge their faith because they feared the Pharisees. This takes us back into John chapter nine. If you weren't with us, this is the, uh, the Cliff's Note version of John chapter nine. When Jesus healed the guy who was born blind, which is a really fun passage because the disciples begin to say, hey, hey Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he would be born blind? Which if you look at it from 30,000 feet, the, the real conversation is, who sinned? This guy, when he was in the womb, because he's always been blind, or his parents before he was born. And this is a real discussion within Judaism at the time, and Jesus says, nobody. Uh, he, he's born blind so that God can reveal God's power right here and right now. Note, it's not causality. He's not born with the intention uh, that he would be blind so that 20 years later he would not be blind, but he's blind with the result that God can supernaturally heal this person. But when the Pharisees find that guy's parents and they say, tell us about your son, John says they wouldn't do it because they were afraid that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. 
So some scholars would say this is showing us that this context is well beyond Jesus. And it goes into this moment in the late first century, early second century, when the Jewish rabbis would make people stand up and like recite this oath to show that they were still in the family. And if they couldn't get through certain portions, then they would be excommunicated from the family. And what we have in this passage is there are these leaders, they wouldn't acknowledge their faith in Jesus because they were scared that they would be expelled from the synagogue, that they would be appa sunagogoi, that they would be removed from the synagogue. And this got my wheels turning all week about how this might be similar in some ways for us. The fear that we have about the thoughts and the ideas and the the beliefs or the practices that we have that we might feel would push us to the margins of the community in which we find ourselves. The things that we are beginning to question that might put us on the outs with certain people, maybe your parents, your family, other communities where you have found a home and you begin to, I'm not gonna use this pejoratively, but stick with me, where you begin to outgrow that community with your own new understandings of the world. And the fear that drives us is the same fear that these people probably had because they don't want their world to implode because of Jesus. On a very basic level, You could also say that when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, there might be this tension that you feel with your older communities, again, family, friends, the people that you have done life with, and now you have this new code of living that seems to be in tension with them, and the fear that we feel in those moments is very similar to the fear that these religious leaders may have felt at this stage. It says they believed, and then John does something really cool here, but they loved human praise more than God's glory. And I've put it here in the Greek, it's uh, the root doxa, it means glory or fame or honor. And the author is doing this play on words. They loved human doxa more than they loved God's doxa. They loved the honor that they got from humans more than they loved God's glory. And they they phrased their entire life to win the praise of human people more than they did about following God in honesty and obedience. And I don't know about you, but there's been moments when this is enticing, because what comes with that is some form of status, some sort of privilege, some form of image. And when you begin to move towards what God is asking you to do or calling you to do, and that might push against the grain of the human acceptance that you have felt, it becomes very easy for us to cower and to love human glory more than we love the glory of God because not only is it immediate, not only do we get likes and shares on Facebook or for the under 30s, whatever you guys are into now, I don't know. I don't know how that gets liked. 
But like you, you go after these things that give you status more so than you allow yourself to be used as an obedient vessel that demonstrates God's glory in the world. And as I'm reading this, and as I'm trying to do, to do diligence with that first century context and these people, these religious leaders that are being forced to, to make a decision, I'm also simultaneously thinking about, about us and wondering what are the things that, that we fear? And not only that, what are the things that we fear in our religious communities that we think might push us out? I love to think and I, I love to hope that what we've created here at TRP is a wonderfully inclusive, theologically diverse community where all ideas are welcomed and accepted and they're within like the trust tree and everybody can share freely and it's all great and good and wonderful. But I also would imagine that for some of you, you might still feel that tension in a couple of ways. You might feel that tension here because maybe you don't think exactly what I think about certain things and you know that if you were to tell me the things that you think that I might say, hmm, I'm disappointed in you, which wouldn't happen, but hmm. <laughs> or maybe more likely, you're still nursing wounds from the past, from religious communities that you've been a part of where you have felt ostracized and as a minority pushed off and as someone who is viewed as not safe anymore because your ideas have outgrown the community where you have been raised. And I know that as loving, as inclusive, and as theologically diverse as this place strives to be, that those old wounds still hurt real bad. And I know this because I carry my own. I know this because I have been one who has had to make decisions about whether or not I'm going to give credence to the religious community that seems to determine whether I'm in or I'm out. And when I've decided, well, I guess I'll be out because I think this is going to give God more glory and I wanna be uh, obedient to that, it still hurts when people remove you when people decide if you're good enough or you're not good enough to be a part of their club, whether people will say, mm, you're in or you're out. And when you think about what people are saying as you're out, you, mm, you're gonna be one of the ones who burns in hell for all eternity. That, friends, if you haven't experienced it, it hurts because you've got people who are in leadership determining whether you're in or you're not in, and in this text, that seems to be what's, what's the, the onus of this passage, the religious leaders deciding who's in and who's out and determining if they will be expelled or not, and the fear that drives these people whether or not to say, I'm gonna follow Jesus or not, is massive. It says that they believed, but they loved human praise more than God's glory. Do we? When you think about your life, 
And maybe before you hit the pillow this evening, I would encourage you to think for 15 seconds before you just completely shut down. I don't know if that's similar to me, but if I'm just 15 seconds is all it takes and I'm, I'm a goner. Maybe in those 15 seconds, you can reflect on what drives you. Is it the glory and fame and honor that's bestowed upon you by people in your cliques and crews or if it's God? And those two things don't have to be um, mutually exclusive. Sometimes they feel that way. And sometimes we have to make a decision, am I gonna do what I feel is the most honest representation of me following God in this moment, or am I gonna cash in my chips and take the easy route and get some easy praise from these people? Figuring out that divide in those 15 seconds before you fall asleep might be a healthy and beneficial exercise for us. One scholar says that at this point, the curtains of the play close because Jesus has sort of laid it all out and the end of the book of signs is here. This is like the intermission moment when people can go out for a smoke break or get a pack of milk duds to take back into the theater. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I was thinking about a Seinfeld episode I watched and they were, you know, it's whatever. Flashing back to my 10th grade rebellion. My cigarettes. Okay. Okay, we can move on. But the, the curtains close, right? The curtains close, and, and the audience is just sort of, they're there. They've, they've heard all these great things that Jesus has done. The curtains close, and then there's one final spotlight that shows, and Jesus walks back out. No one around. In this scene, it's just Jesus on stage with a single spotlight. And he, it, the text says that he shouts, he cries out this summary statement, which I've only included the first couple of verses. It says, whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me, but in the one who sent me. In effect, I've been telling you guys that everything that I do is what my father is doing through me. We're like one and the same person. So if you're seeing me, you're seeing him. If you're believing in me, you're believing in him. Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me won't live in darkness. Gail R. O'Day says these verses are not displaced from another discourse. They're not taken from somewhere else and then appended in this moment. They stand on their own as an overview of these dominant themes. It says if you can read John 1 through the end of chapter 12, and what Jesus says in this moment, they're all of the big themes that, that happen. Then she goes on to say, these verses, they add no new teachings to the gospel, rather they read as a compendium of all that has preceded, and they serve to present the reader with the theological issues necessary to make his or her own decisions about Jesus. The curtain closes and Jesus steps out and says, this is what it's all about. This, these are the signs. I told you guys, I'm a light for the darkness. And if you're looking at me, you're looking at God. And if you're seeing what I do, you're seeing what God does. And, and then he sort of leaves it at this cliffhanger. What are you gonna do? And then Jesus, the speaker at the play, he, he slips back behind the curtain and the lights go out and you're left in the darkness trying to figure out what in the world to make of all of this. I, 
I don't think that there's too much to be added there. We've done a lot of work over 38 weeks in this gospel. But just like these original readers were faced with this, are you in or are you out decision, we still face that. And what we could add to that as well, because I think for a lot of us, like we've, we've made that decision to follow Jesus. And now we're actually trying to figure out, well, what does that look like? Because I know what I thought it was, but now like, what does it look like for me to live as someone who is following Jesus? And where we find ourselves is back in this dichotomy of, are we gonna go after the fame and the, the honor and the prestige that is placed on us by our human folks? Or are we going to follow God with reckless abandon? in full obedience to wherever it is that God is leading us? Are we the types that are believing, but we don't want to tell anybody that? We're believing, but we don't want to have to do that. We're following Jesus, but only when it's easy. Or when the curtains have closed and the lights go down, and even before we reach the second act of this beautiful play that is staged here, are we able to leave and route to our smoke break and say, oh, I'm in. Whatever this guy's wanting me to do, I'm gonna do it. And if he's calling me to love God and he's calling me to love my neighbors, I'm gonna do that. You got a light? I'm really carrying this metaphor, like, I just, I, just, I just wanna go with it, you know? Just wanna go with it. But hopefully, as we're all there, seeing what's happened before us, seeing all the signs, and then trying to throw some stones at people, saying, like, how could you not see this? And maybe taking one step back and saying, well, man, I, there's moments in my life when I don't see it. And becoming aware of that, and then saying, maybe now's the time to go after it unlike any other moment in my life. We don't do altar calls here, uh, not out of principle, just as a you know, general practice. But perhaps this might be a moment as the book of signs ends and as we head into this last week of Jesus's life where we get to self-assess and begin to think through, have I been going after the praise of the people or have I been able to say, screw that, wherever God's moving me, I'm gonna go. And if not, maybe now is the time. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.